this week in the Quota Report and Weekly Review, the podcast that uh, brings you the top 10 articles that were uh, found by the readers of the Quota Report over the last week, and that will now show up in your email uh, box on Tuesday, uh, December 5. So today is uh, December 4, and uh, Paul Harold and I come to you at uh, to uh, discuss these things ahead of time so you have a heads up as to what these top 10 articles are. And so it's our pleasure to do that week by week and trust it will just be a a helpful uh, podcast as you're doing your own reading uh, and uh, as you mix it up with people in your own church and your small group and other uh, places where you have discussion. And so Paul and I enjoy coming to you each week and uh, providing this update. And the other thing that we enjoy is just taking note of what the readers of the Aquila Report uh, find as the articles they enjoy reading and uh, what they present as the top 10. So, uh, Paul, it's a great delight to start. This is the first uh, Monday that we have uh, in, in December. So uh, the year is wow. almost, uh, 2023 is almost gone. It's amazing. Uh, you know, I look back and saw how many podcasts we've done and it's been amazing how long this has been going on so uh it's yeah. we we delight in that very much absolutely it is uh it's it's wild that it is december i can't i can't believe it but uh here we go you know I, go. I have a little one who's counting the days uh, down to christmas <laughs> yes. every single morning so yep that's exactly right yeah they the uh, that's what it means is slow as christmas right that's right who can't wait and wait because it seems like it's coming. It's going to be forever. So, okay, well, Paul, our usual pattern is to just give out the, what the 10, the titles of the top 10, starting with 10, working down to one. So one, you go 10 to six, I'll do five okay. to one, and then we'll start our discussion. Okay, so number 10 from last week, uh, it's just a piece in the American mind. Edward Erler, Edward J. Erler writes, The Rise of Ethical Cannibalism. This is a fascinating piece, by the way. Really interesting uh, number for number 10. Number nine, Larry Ball, the po- a polyistic empire, a new experiment about to fail. Number eight from last week, the Marxist origin of wokeism. This written by Peter Jones. Number seven, Israel, Hamas, and evangelicals. Written by Dean C. Curry. And number six, uh, we have 10 formative books by William B. Evans. Okay, well, then number five on culture war, uh, Doug Wilson and the Moscow Mood by Kevin DeYoung is number five. Uh, Number uh, four is uh, coming up here um, is uh, scroll. I can get it for you if you want me. Here it is. Yeah. Just what is involved. Just what is involved in Protestants going back to basics, reflection spurred by Carl Truman's recent appeal. And this is by Tom Hervey. Uh, Then we have number three, uh, which is the uh, update on the BCO amendments, BCO amendments that are being passed by the or considered by the PCA general, I mean, uh, presbyteries uh, by Scott Edberg. Uh, Then that's number three. Number two is an article by. Uh, Carl Truman, uh, Protestants need to go back to basics. And then number one, which actually touches on critique of that article by Carl Truman, uh, by Ron Giacomo. No, I am spiritually closer with evangelicals who reject certain tenets of classical theism than with classical Trinitarians who reject the Reformed doctrine of justification. And as I said, that's by Ron uh, Giacomo. And that's where we begin. Now, uh, Paul, as we look at these, that basically we have three articles. We have the original article by uh, Carl Truman, which is number two uh, by the uh, chosen by the readers of the Aquila Report, in which, again, it's Protestants need to go back to basics, in which he lays out a premise that uh, perhaps we've lost in the Protestantism some of the earlier uh, basics of the uh, Christian systems and uh, faith as it's developed over the years. So he says, for instance, doctrines such as simplicity, immutability, and eternal generation have been redefined or have vanished altogether in certain Protestant communities, even as many who played a role in this main 
obtained a verbal commitment to the Nicene Creed or the Westminster Confession of Faith. The conservative criticism of liberal Christians that they uh, use orthodox words but mean something different somehow did not apply when the people doing so affirmed the historical resurrection but rejected the basic elements of classical doctrine of God. So he's saying, a, uh, this is Carl Truman, a recovery of classical theology is thus long overdue for a variety of reasons. And he talks about, for instance, the language of confessional Protestantism and Orthodox evangelicalism was historically rooted in these classical doctrines. The reformers and their hearers uh, took it for granted that the theology, that theology is always to be done in careful dialogue with the past and as much as possible in community with it. This, but this simply, uh, but this is simply counterintuitive to an evangelicalism shaped more by revivalism of the 18th and 19th centuries and the fundamentalist modernist strife of the early 20th century. So the point that, uh, one of the points anyway, that uh, Carl Truman is uh, making is that this says his point forward to one of the reasons classical theology and classical theism now seem implausible uh, to many. The true, uh, true to its roots, evangelical Christianity in our modern day is too often impatient with language that seems speculative and abstract and doctrine that cannot be easily instrumentalized. Uh, so uh, with that being his plea, uh, so this is our, was number two, we had two uh, interactions with discussions with um, with Carl Truman and number so the number one article by De Giacomo, uh, where he uses that long title. He says, "No, I am spiritually closer with evangelicals who reject certain tenets of classical theism than with classical Trinitarians who reject the Reformed doctrine of justification." So basically, he says, I am committed to the Catholic creeds and Reformed confessions. Maybe that is why I find it interesting that we are being asked to consider why those committed to the creeds and confessions like myself can enjoy more spiritual closeness with those who reject certain tenets of classical theism, like certain evangelicals, than uh, with others who have a different understanding of justification, like devout Roman Catholics. In other words, in the context of spiritual closeness, we are asked to compare, one, an evangel evangelical rejection of simplicity or impassibility or eternal generation to what is framed as to a mere different understanding of justification. So that's where he, uh, where uh, Ron de Giacomo takes off on this uh, to talk about going back to basics. He said, although the doctrines of Simplicity, impassibility, and eternal general generation are glorious truths to be cherished and defended. We may not deny that the basis of our genuine spiritual closeness, that is true fellowship in the Lord, is union with Christ by the Holy Spirit and agreement over gospel truths. Accordingly, it is no small matter that entrance into the spiritual oneness is gospel wrought conversion, which eludes off official Roman Catholic doctrine according to confessional Protestant standards. In a word, one cannot possibly enjoy spiritual closeness with a Roman Catholic who is true to Roman Catholicism. Therefore, no matter how pristine a Roman Catholic's theology proper is, there is no possibility of Christian fellowship for those who truly reject the Reformed doctrine of justification. So that he then, Ron de Giacomo, opens up and explores in his article as he is interacting with uh, what Carl Truman was saying in his article about uh, back to basics. So what is the going back to the basics really imply? And uh, so the question about going back to councils and so forth uh, uh, and the doctrine about uh, the nature of God and who he is, and how he's defined for us in scripture uh, versus um, the, the fellowship that we can have within uh, Christendom uh, between those who uh, have different views on uh, justification and the like. And then when we come to um, number four, the most read article, the Tom Hervey's, he has his title again is just what is involved 
and Protestants going back to basics. Reflection spurred by Carl Truman's recent appeal. So uh, obviously the um, Carl did strike a chord uh, and uh, got the you know got the uh, feelings going here. He says um, in this writing in light of the recent delivery of the inaugural lectures for the Center for Classical Theology, Carl Truman has issued an appeal for modern Protestants, especially evangelicals, to go back to basics by recovering classical theology, which he defines as orthodox Christian doctrines as set forth by the creeds, the great tradition of theology exemplified by the ancient ecumenical councils and traditional Protestant confessions, such as the Westminster Confession. That definition will not suffice, according to Tom Hervey. Uh, one, uh, the great tradition so named does not merely include creeds, confessions, and councils. It also includes the teachings of ancient and medieval teachers. Hence, the, um, the Center for Classical Theology's popular outlet, Credo, which is their um, theological journal and magazine, has published issues like What Can Protestants Learn from Thomas Aquinas and also the Great Tradition Patristic Edition. This great tradition also includes Platonism, hence Credo uh, also says the great tradition believed Platon uh, and uh, Platonism's fit metaphysical commitments could serve Christianity and so forth. So again, this is not my conception, but that of the great traditions uh, proponents themselves. So that's the one thing is to what do we go back? And then uh, Tom Harvey also raises the problem with the definition that here is a bit about councils. So which councils are to be accepted and which are to be reje rejected? Evangelicals have a coherent, practical answer. We are to test everything in light of scripture and hold fast what is good, abhor what is evil, including all falsehood. Those who wish to embrace the great tradition are going to be sorely tried at this point, for there is a tension between tradition and scripture, which will be resolvable only by the choosing between the two. And then he goes on and explores and uh, discusses that in more greater detail. So, Paul, not to get too down in the wonkish here, because it's there, there's enough verbiage here that, uh, and it's a great discussion that, uh, you know, if the, you, you know, the people who already read it, uh, that give us the articles one through, uh, two and four, uh, is the top ten, within the top 10, uh, are interacting together. So this is something that all of us need to explore because it, it does touch on some other vital, uh, issues in the life of the church in terms of what are those things which are basic to our uh, to our faith and um, the things that give us stability in the uh, evangelical and Christian world? So, um, so the, we instead of trying to outline every part of it, we just really encourage. I encourage uh, the readers to you know take all these three articles together and see the interaction that's taking place. Absolutely. I find it uh, fascinating and encouraging that the Aquila Report readers have uh, have this at the top of the list and not necessarily the tone uh, in Moscow, Idaho, although that is on the list or the mood uh, rather. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, think, right. I think it's Please. interesting that that Carl Trubin, you know, he, he writes it and, and we have we have Harvey and, and uh, De Giacomo uh, and that that's, uh, you know, that's front loading the list here. Um, so I just that that's my observation. So I have really nothing more to add than that because I okay. think well, and it. I think you, but that's a good point that you make is that the readers were really interested in saying we let's we want to get really down to basics here. They could have gone with what um, the one we get to it the article on the Moscow mood and and uh, Doug Wilson, which you know probably a little bit more interest, more immediate interest, uh, but they they really stayed with that which has a little bit more meat you have to get into all these words like simplicity and impassibility and all those kinds of uh technical terms that you have to wade through and that's important so we're not looking just for the hype uh, looking for something of substance and uh, something of a good discussion that will uh, take place on this 
So anyway, so we commend that. So that's numbers one, two, and four, which deal all with the same topic as they interact together. By the way, that also shows the highbrow way in which we are to discuss things that we really want to get clarity on uh, is to have more light than heat. And that's what's in, uh, important. All right. Well, then uh, it's sort of in a, a different way, right in the middle of all that. Um, the readers uh, came up with number uh, article number three uh, on the top 10 as uh, November 2023 BCO amendments are uh, update. So up to this point, uh, just to remind uh, those who listen to us regularly that the Presbyterian Church in America has sent three proposed amendments to the Book of Church order to the Presbytery. So at the General Assembly in June, they debated a whole raft of uh, proposed overtures and settled just on three to send on down to four consideration and vote by the uh, presbyteries. And, um, and so 40 presbyteries out of the 88 uh, have already taken these up. And at this point, uh, the summary is that the uh, all three are are passing, you know, overwhelmingly. Uh, you know, in the last few years, Paul, remember some of these articles, uh, I mean, some of these amendments that we've dealt with in the Presbyterian Church of America over the last five years, it was a direct result in many cases of because of Revoice trying to bring, uh, adjust and uh, define things in the Book of Church order in light of all that discussion that was taking place. And so there were some that passed and others that didn't pass. But eventually, about three have passed in other years, and now we have one more in this of these three that um, sort of rounded off. So I think that sort of completes what's necessary to cover that the, the revoice side of things. But anyway, um, so these three overtures, if you're interested, are uh, their items one, two, and three deals with uh, dealing with using titles to and using them correctly um the in other words uh, the the intent here is that we somehow will call somebody who's laboring in a church uh, let's say as a music director but not ordained uh maybe a youth uh, director again but not ordained or some other you know task of in discipleship ministry or something uh, we'll use the term pastor or minister or something of that order <clears throat> that the, you know, if you look at the Book of Church Order the way it was and already is, uh, basically says those titles are reserved for those who are specifically ordained and set apart for those offices. And there some these terms like youth pastor uh, or youth minister or music minister, youth minister of a, a pastor of music, you know, we just would throw those around without really thinking about it. And so this uh, Overture 26 uh, would amend the um, Book of Church order in order to say that um, the the use of uh, titles associated with the ordained officer should only be used for them and not just used in a sort of haphazard way. Uh, the second one is Overture 23 uh, deals with item two. And this just, again, is one of the revoice uh, our, uh, amendments. This item is uh, likely the final amendment in the response to the Revoice uh, Conference and corresponding movement uh, promoting the so-called Side B Christianity. And it's coming to pass as well um, in terms of what are the requirements, again, for off church office with reference to how an officer in a church, a minister, uh, uh, elder, or deacon uh, will present themselves and how they will live their lives. And then the third is Overture 27, which can, which a process continues the strong support of our presbyteries that the um, the concept of the um, the the unconfessions for cases without process. Um, how do we put that together? And that's basically BCO 38.1, and it's a case what process. Uh, what are the steps that a uh, court, whether it's a session or a presbytery, dealing with a member who has um, been accused of an, uh, an offense, of a sinful offense of such a nature that needs uh, discipline, 
they're coming as their own confessor. Uh, what is the responsibility of the court in making sure that the matter is handled well for the sake of the individual as well as the church? So uh, all three are prevailing right now, uh, Paul. That's good news. Uh, yes, think, it is. Uh, this is good news for you specifically. You know, I, I know you mentioned Revoice at the uh, at the beginning of this. Man, what a what a long trek this has been. Mm-hmm. You know, to get to this point, and uh, and also, you know, now we're we're getting to the the titles and uh, officers and you know people in ordained office. I think that's really good, and that well, and, and 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 that that it's that it's making gain gains, and it lo- looks like it's going to uh, be ratified. Yes, and I think your your use of that term, it's taken a long time that that sometimes, uh, you know, in the rush, instead of just reacting to something immediately, uh, sometimes we need to react. Maybe it is an emergency, so we need to go into the ICU and get triaged. Uh, but sometimes we need to have some reflection to make sure we the response is good and it's helpful and we'll have. Uh, some substance to it, and apparently that's the case in these last. Well, I few mean, years. even if you think about it, you know, the the urgency—at least I can speak for myself—the urgency, the frustration that I was seeing is, you know, looking at the culture at large and different denominations, you know, falling to the culture, caving to the culture, and then you just look at what's further down the road. Uh, or, or what we're dealing with right now, you know, which is, uh, you know, chemical castrations of children, drag kids going to drag shows, calling that healthy, calling, you know, these surgeries health care. And we're dealing with an issue that the culture has already decided is well and good, you know, uh, it, it, and, and is perfectly normal. And, and, and we're we're struggling with, uh, you know, the homosexuality issue. Uh, and so that's what it was so you know, maddening to me about it, you know, it's, it's frustrating ra- rather, you know, um, how it, it should just be kind of a, an open and shut case. Um, but as somebody who is very familiar uh, with the Presbyterian process at this point, I think it's safe to say that I, 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 I am very familiar with it. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's good to see it work and play out. So good. All right. Number five uh, is Kevin DeYoung uh, doing a review oversight uh, critique of uh, Doug Wilson, the Mo- uh, Moscow mood, and the title on culture war, Doug Wilson and the Moscow mood being Moscow, Idaho, where the uh, church that uh, Doug Wilson pastors is located. And um, and basically, he, when he, he gives some uh, predicate and in introduction, he says, which brings me to the reason you are likely reading this article in the first place, and that is the name Doug Wilson in the title. So what do you think about Doug Wilson is a question I've been asked many times during my years in pastoral ministry. And I'd say the questions questioners have been pretty evenly split between I'm asking because I really like him. I'm asking because I hope you don't like him. And I'm asking because I'm not sure what to think. Even now, I'd rather not be writing this piece because one, it takes a lot of time Two, I'm not looking to get out into a long drawn out debate with Wilson or his followers. And three, I know a lot of good Christians who have been helped by uh, Wilson and the people and the institutions in his orbit. So uh, it's not out of any peak or any particular moment that there's some, you know, uh, fire that needs to be extinguished or uh, any emotion that needs to be either enhanced or cooled. Uh, That's not the case. And he goes on to give a number of uh, very laudatory uh, reviews of what uh, uh, Doug Wilson has brought to the table and how he's helped the church in many ways. So he says, uh, and yet for for all of that, all those positive things, that is understandable, sometimes commendable about Moscow mood, he calls it, uh, there are serious problems. In my criticisms that follow, I'm not going to focus on historical theological disagreements I may have with Wilson. I won't be touching on federal vision or pedo communion or his views on antebellum South or his arguments for national Christian nationalism or his particular brand of postmillenarianism. Uh, my concerns are much more to do with one or two conclusions that Christians may reach if Wilson becomes their intellectual mentor. My bigger concern is with the long-term spiritual effects of admiring and imitating the Moscow mood. 
for the, the mood that attracts people to Moscow is too often incompatible with Christian virtue and considerate of other Christians and ultimately inconsistent with the stated aims of Wilson's Christendom project. So that so if you as you read this and it's number five on the top read list from last uh, week's uh, articles on the Aquila report, uh, then you get an overview. And I think it's a very dispassionate, very carefully drafted, not uh, just blowing smoke kind of thing or uh, lobbing bombs and grenades and the like. So um, uh, so instead of going forward on this, you, you can see how uh, Kevin DeYoung brings to that very focused point of a couple of things that he raises and we'll let you read on your own to be able to see what they say. Yeah, and this is going to be, I think, you know, one of the things Kevin DeYoung says here, I'm not looking to get into a, you know, long, drawn-out uh, confrontation with Doug Wilson supporters. Well, <laughs> it, I mean, he obviously knew that was what was going to happen here because um, he's cited it as one of the reasons he, you know, doesn't necessarily want to do this. Um so when this article came out, you know, Twitter was a buzz last week uh, or X or whatever they want to call it now. And uh, one of the things that Doug Wilson tweeted in response was, you know, basically thanking Kevin DeYoung for his critique in, in terms of saying, hey, this is, you know, this is a legitimate critique. I'm going to respond to it um, in, you know, in time. Uh, he's in the middle of, uh, as Kevin DeYoung talks about, no quarter November, no, no quarter November. He was wrapping a lot of that stuff up. Uh, Doug Wilson has since responded. So as, as you're listening to this podcast, we're recording this around noon central time on December the 4th. So it is Monday and he has, uh, he has since responded to Kevin DeYoung. I haven't read all of it. I, I started to read it this morning, but I got sidetracked. And again, he talks about the parts of the, the critique, uh, where, you know, Kevin DeYoung, he thinks there's, uh, are, are commendable, not the critique. He, he thanks Kevin DeYoung for acknowledging that, Hey, Moscow's not all bad, you know. The stuff that they've done is, isn't isn't all bad, and uh, so in that instance, I think it's good. And he even said he, uh, Wilson even said he looks forward to getting to meet Kevin DeYoung someday in person and and yeah. talking. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, get, go ahead. Sorry. You no, know, well, that just brings up uh, again good discussion. You know, you raise issues uh, like the first three articles that we talked about. Um, you, something is said. And then there's discussion on it. Uh, and we don't have to uh, paint somebody as the devil incarnate to make our point. We deal with the in the realm of ideas, you know, be rational and reasonable. And I think that's the way to handle any undercurrents or any differences of opinion. You know, just let's let's have that light on the subject and then let's have a, a civil discussion on it. Yeah, and I think that's what's going to, you know, continue to happen. Maybe not necessarily on Twitter, you know, um, no. uh, <laughs> but maybe, you know, some some on Twitter as well, you know. So I, uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it, and uh, you know, continuing to, like you said, that it's nothing wrong with uh, you know debating ideas and that sort of thing. And you know, fundamentally, this is kind of about how do we fight the culture war, you know, yeah. how do we how do we interact with the culture is is and people have concerns about that and that and, and that sort of thing and. Uh, I think one of the one of the helpful contrasts, though, you know, during all of this and feel free to disagree is kind of holding up what Doug Wilson is, is doing with his, you know, blog and may blog uh, uh, videos and, and writing versus something like the Gospel Coalition, you know, and 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 what how they have how they engage the culture. I mean, you know, you want a dichotomy, you want a contrast. That certainly is that certainly is it. Um, so anyway, um, that's, that's good. for now. That's all good. I got. Good. No, good, good, uh, good example. Just look, if you step back and just say, how is this being handled? It's being handled well, good, well above board. And, and we need that kind of discussion in the light of the church in, in the church. Okay. Number uh, six brings us to, uh, uh, Bill, um, professor William Evans, uh, teaches at Erskine. Seminary College, uh, 10 formative books that he looks, he's just reflecting back on things. And he actually says they're actually more than 10. But, you know, if you sum, uh, summarize it a little bit, at least they're 10 uh, that uh, impacted him um, and, you know, made, you know, stirred him up in some different area of his uh, thinking. 
He starts with uh, Irenaeus's Against All Heresies. He says this early patristic work is much more than a catalog of Christian Gnostic heresies. It articulates a redemptive historic pro view of salvation and participation in Christ, the second Adam who fixes the first Adam that did wrong and so recapitulates or sums up and under a new head, human history. Uh, I, he said, I found this uh, that the later theologians with whom I particularly resonate tend to uh, have an Irenaean overtones, that is Calvin, Nevin, and Torrance, whom he mentions in the list as well. So he also mentions Augustine's uh, confession, uh, in which he recounts his, gives his uh, testimony, which is one of the classics of uh, Christian faith. Uh, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, he, here, uh, Dr. Evans says, reading through the Institutes carefully reminds us that the Reformed tradition is broader and deeper than the later federal theology codified in Hodge and Burkhoff. So it's an interesting uh, statement to make there. And he talks about his the other influences of Calvin there. Uh, talks uh, also about the uh, Christian faith by Friedrich uh, Schleiermacher, uh, although he says he's dubbed by Christian scholarship as the father of modern liberal theology. In the 19th century, Schleiermacher was often viewed as a bridge back to orthodoxy in terms of what he was writing. It's an interesting take on that. Um, he also mentions John Nevin, the uh, mystical presence, um, Perry Miller's The New England Mind, the 17th century, having uh, grown up, he says, in a religious context where the Puritans were lauded for their warm, warmth of piety, and having grown really tired of the religious subjectivity on steroids of evangelicalism, I was pretty much done with the Puritans. But reading the Harvard atheist, because uh, Perry was uh, did not claim to be a faith man of faith, uh, Professor Perry Miller on the New England Puritans it really helped, finally helped me to make sense of them as people, which I thought is really, and I, in one sense, I have to agree with him. Uh, my reading uh, many years ago, Perry Miller had the same impact on me changed, not that I had the same view that Dr. Evans did, but uh, at least in leaning in that direction. And uh, it was very helpful. Uh, then uh, Richard Niebuhr's Christ and Culture, uh, another's uh, Thomas Torrance is the Mediation of Christ. Uh, then he also gives a shout out in uh, number nine here to uh, Richard Gaffin's Resurrection and Redemption. He said, this book rocked my world when I was a seminary student, Gaffin's development of Gerhardus Voss's Second Adam uh, Christology, which with particular focus on the resurrection as climax of Christ's redemptive work, helped me to move beyond the conventional evangelical transactional view of salvation to a more participatory understanding of salvation as union with Christ. Uh, that, that's a goal, that's, uh, that sentence itself is gold. Um, and uh, the, Dr. Gaffin should, uh, what he has taught also affected me. So I'm sort of, I'm uh, tailgating here um, with uh, behind uh, uh, Dr. Evans and his choices. And then he ends up with uh, Alistair McIntyre after Virtue. Uh, this vol volume almost single-handedly stimulated a, uh, a, a simulated a popular revival of interest in virtue ethics. So uh, anyway, so when we think back to who influenced you, it would be interesting to make a list of the top 10. Maybe you can go 15, 20, but at least the top 10 that uh, you might have and appreciate uh, Bill Evans uh, making this, uh, his sharing his list with us and I hope it stimulates good thinking. Yeah, that's good. It would be interesting. I agree to see a lot of, uh, you know, people like yourself, Dominic, uh, and others uh, share if they could pick 10 books, you know, what would, what, right. which, which would it be? So, yeah, I'll have to do that. I'll, I'll share it. I'll have to share, share it with you out loud first and then see if that, how that fit, how that runs with you. <clears throat> because I, I, I could give you my 10 easily. Yeah. Sounds uh, good. Yes. All right. Well, moving on then to number seven, the, um, uh, by Dean, uh, C Curry, uh, Israel, Hamas and evangelicals. Evangelical support for Israel is not grounded in a putative uh, biblical framework, but rather in prudential considerations. 
Now, <clears throat> this is coming up because there's still a great deal of debate in uh, evangelicalism, anyway, with regard to the place of Israel in God's economy. We know what it is in the, the matter of the Old Covenant, New Covenant, and Israel being the conduit through which God worked to bring redemption through the world, uh, finalized and focused and centered in Christ. The question is, um, as the chosen people were, are they can still the chosen people? And is Israel, uh, having been formed once again in 1948 as a nation state, uh, is that the a result of predictive prophecy. As you can see from what uh, Dr. Curry says here, even joke support is uh, for Israel should not is not grounded in a biblical framework, but rather more of providential or prudential considerations. That's what he's saying. And he so in this brief article, he very carefully says that uh, it uh, that it, dispensationalism has played a major role in in uh, their thinking and it's influenced a great number of people who, whether dispensational or not, just their view of uh, Israel. So and he finally concludes though, in terms of the war that's going on between Israel and Hamas and how we're to view uh, on it. Um, he says, finally in assessing evangelical attitudes towards Israel and the current Israeli Hamas war, we need to remember that while dispensationalism continues to cast a wide net of influence over evangelical thinking about Israel, not all evangelicals are dispensational. This is especially true among the young, though not all, in Reformed and Anglican traditions. I am not aware of polling of among these groups, but I suspect that majority, like their dispensational sisters and brothers, uh, strongly support Israel, but with an important difference. Their support is not grounded in a putative biblical framework, uh, but rather in prudential considerations. Indeed, there are many prudential reasons for Christians as citizens to support Israel. Among them, Israel is the only uh, free democratic nation in the Middle East. Uh, also, Israel is closely, a close ally of the United States, sharing similar cultural heritage, values, and interests. Lastly is the moral imperative. The meaning of Israel is powerfully uh, captured in uh, Yad uh, Vashem, the Jewish Holocaust Memorial located in the hills of uh, West uh, Jerusalem. The existence of Israel as a symbol of a people's survival of tyranny and, and their quest for freedom. The United States, therefore, has a moral obligation to ensure that Israel survives into the future. So that becomes his sort of stand at the end uh, of how he presents this very carefully. Short article, but very powerful. I appreciate uh, what Dr. Gurry has to share here. Uh, yeah, we, this is like the third or fourth week in a row where we have uh, an article in the top 10 dealing specifically with evangelicals and their support. They're, you know, uh, oftentimes quite frequently blind support of Israel just based on this idea that the modern nation state of Israel is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Interestingly enough, I interviewed a guy, Dominic, by the name of Scott Horton. He's a radio host, and he was actually cited in this interview, a guy by the name of uh, David Ben-Gurion, you know, the first prime minister who was actually claiming that the Palestinians uh, are also, uh, you know, related to the ancient Hebrews and that they converted to Muslim, they converted to Islam when the Muslims came and took over, you know, because it was cheaper, um, which I feel like is an irony uh, during this bloody conflict right now that uh, it's lost, if true, uh, but he, he made a compelling case. I even in that interview, I used uh, a recent piece on the Equilibrium Report. I quoted um, uh, Dr. O. Palmer Robinson in his piece talking about how uh, the, the land and the, uh, and the Jews and how do we even know what a Jew is considering the fact that, uh, you know, since Abraham, uh, you could become you could become part of the tribe of, of uh, you know, of Israel. You could become Jewish by, you know, adopting Jewish customs and, you know, talking about, uh, you know, uh, you know, um, Rahab and uh, the, the, the Moabite and, and, uh, and, and, um, or, you know, just talking about the different, uh, lineages. And, and so I, I quoted, uh, Dr. Robertson there in that piece. Um, but yeah, this is another article about that. You know, I think, uh, it's up for debate right now. I think a lot of people are evaluating, uh, the, the, the cultural values. Nobody wants to support Hamas at this point, but then again, you do have uh, a growing, uh, and maybe I'm speaking more for myself, a growing anti-war sentiment uh, from an American uh, perspective in terms of continually getting involved in more and more wars.
Um, so that's also being debated right now. And that's right. And I think that's what uh, I like the way uh, Dr. Curry mentions this uh, with reference to it's more within the realm of, uh, of providence than it is in the realm of uh, biblical uh, theology <laughs> about with uh, reference to modern day Israel. And so the support for it is not necessarily based on uh, a biblical critique. And again, you, you've referenced uh, O. Palmer Robertson's article from a few weeks ago, which clearly outlines uh, five different perspectives and uh, takes it. You know, if you read, go back and read those art, that article, you can see how he covers it very well historically and biblically to mm. get us to the present time. So it was really good. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Number eight comes uh, back to our. A friend Peter Jones, who always is writing in the area of uh, the application of a, a Christian worldview, especially as he sees it in the context of uh, the the battle in the heavenlies um, between the satanic opposition and all the various views that come up uh, over against biblical uh, Christianity. Um, so he talks about uh, oneism versus twoism. Uh, the Twoism is God giving, creating a, a binary world. Uh, the oneism, everything is non-binary, and um, and everything <clears throat> you and therefore you can't make distinctions. And so it's not just a matter of male and female issues, but it's also an idea of of how the thought patterns. So here is the hideous uh, face of uh, well, excuse me, the Marxist origins of workism, and it's the hideous face of revolution. Again, just an impactful article by uh, Peter Jones. Uh, he says, I'm picking up a subject which I've already written in an article entitled Wokeism, the New Pagan Morality. We now live in an increasingly post-Christian society. Interestingly, 56% of American voters deemed uh, the term woke, which was come now into our vocabulary, uh, to be positive, associated with being informed and educated, while just 39% deemed it negative, uh, likened, uh, likening it to uh, censorship and being overly politically correct. In his book, The American Cultural Revolution, How the Left Conquered Everything by Christopher Rufo, traces the origin of the CRT, that's critical race theory slash wokeism, uh, showing how America has been quietly taken over by the ideological heirs of 1960s radical neo-Marxists. In his groundbreaking research on the contemporary Western culture, he discovered a hideous face of the revolution, that is, a rot spreading through the American life. The country's foundations are starting to shake loose. If this is true, we all need to know about it. So, as he says, we now live in an increasingly post-Christian society, easily seduced by false notions of reality. One recent study found the median number of people in a Christian congregation in America in 2023 is 60. That's less than half of what it was 20 years ago when the number was 137. Um, the, uh, the steep decline uh, has been called the great deturching of America. Any respect or for worship of creator, redeemer, God is virtually absent. People cannot live without morals since God created an ethical universe. Those who do not want to respect God's morals are busy normalizing the LGBTQ philosophy, eliminating the nuclear family, and living according to the moral norms of neo-Marxist wokeism. So Marxism is thoroughly anti-Christian denying the being of God and seeing matter as ultimate. It worships the creature, that is matter, rather than the creator. Marx had a close friendship with the radical New Testament scholar Bruno Bauer, who claimed that the Christian gospels were all forgeries and so forth. So he's going on laying the foundation for uh, these um, ideas. But the idea here is that um, the with that Mar Marxist foundation that has led to a new Marxism, which Iraq did come up uh, during what he uh, calls and what's historically called the radical 60s. Um, it was a little wonder that the Marxist uh, Marcuse or Marcuse, as some people say it, suggested a new axis for evolution and racial conflict. He believed class conflict and cultural revolution uh, could be produced by such racial conflict. He saw the black 
militant movement as a viable means of breaking the establishment stranglehold on language and culture. And so we've basically said if we can get to change the culture, the language of the culture, then we change the culture, which is a lot of what is taking place. So a very helpful article by uh, Peter Jones and uh, trust it'll you'll read it and uh, and it'll come along with our next uh, article as well, um, just as a little shorter, but I think it touches the same principle. So when he says we may feel extremely discouraged as we see the direction of our country and we are not promised peace and tranquility, yet the stunning intricacy of God's creation still makes thoughtful people sit up and take notice. Like, so sit up and take notice of what? Well, just God's creation and the perversion of it is what mm-hmm. I took from that. Yes. And so then, then he says those who are all ready to acknowledge the creator may well be drawn to the beauty, power, and love of God, the redeemer, who receives anyone who puts faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in many ways, this wickedness that is spreading across the land, the paganization of the West, uh, is serving to wake people up. I mean, I see it I see it all the time, uh, and it's because uh, just how uh, dark the world is getting. Um, what little light is left, you know, exposes the darkness, and, and people are realizing, wow, evil is evil exists. Well, if evil exists, then good exists. And so, yeah, the, oh, the Lord, remember like articles a couple of weeks ago that were <laughs> that were really basically saying that we that early Christianity uh, changed over time, changed the Roman pagan system and thought patterns, and introduced a Christian thinking pattern into what we now call Western civilization, that over the last uh, 100 or 200 years, that the shift has been going back to Rome. So that we're going back to idolatry. We're going back to multiplicity of gods, which is one of the things that is said in this article that's going to be said in the next two as well. Um, that The uh, shift uh, away from uh, the creator God to many gods and therefore many religions uh, where it's just a, a menu option. You go through the line, pick what you want, and no one can tell you otherwise. Okay, And that's the, uh, the distinction that's going on here. Absolutely. Okay, well, no, number nine then brings us to Larry Ball, who by, continues this thought, a polytheistic empire, not monotheistic, which is what we would argue for as Christians, but a polytheistic empire, a new experiment about to fail. And he summarizes Christianity comprised God's biblical antithesis to the name of uh, in the name of national unity. If we were a Christian nation, we might have hope for survival, even with variations in the language and race. However, like those who sought a humanistic unity at the Tower of Babel, that's in Genesis uh, 11, we are doing the same thing as they did. And we are seeing the judgment of God as a result in our own day. With the passage of laws legalizing abortion, homosexual marriage, the American people have declared war against the God of the Bible in that they're fighting against the laws that he ordained uh, as part of creation. Judgment follows the rejection of blessings. We no longer live in a post-Christian age, but rather in an anti-Christian age. So that's a novel uh, introduction there. So we're beyond post-Christian now. It's anti-Christian. Uh, so no longer will we say you can continue to live together, but now we're going to say uh, we're going to restrict what you can say because we no longer uh, accept that as a possibility. So that's it's interesting. So we uh, this is a, a good summary by um, by Larry Ball and calling us to um, realize that most people who read this article will not be affected by the shift uh, to a polytheistic empire. However, you are you are watching it happen. Decaying happens gradually over time. You probably are alarmed, but not too much. Uh, you have accumulated wealth and life is good. It is your children and grandchildren who will have to pay the price for the error of our way of having rejected that uh, God-ordained way, and they will have to live with the fruit of our mistakes. And he, he finishes by saying, as a post-millennialist, I believe before Christ returns that all the nations shall be converted through the preaching of the gospel. For now, it's obvious that we have made a grave mistake in this country. We fail to understand the basic definition of a nation. However, future generations will learn from our failures, and the day will come when God's people shall see the glory of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. 
Yeah, you know, when, uh, when I read that part, uh, you know, whether you're post-millennials, post-millennials, amillennials, whatever, you know, you do kind of think, well, Christ is going to inherit the nations, but uh, we don't really know which nations are going to be around when Christ comes back, you know? So, <laughs> exactly. There, there you go. <laughs> <clears throat> but of course, the, the, the things about these articles are Peter Jones and Larry and then this number 10, uh, the rise of ethical cannibalism, notice it's ethical cannibalism, not literal, by Edward J. Erler. Uh, all of one of the themes in common is that the lack of clarity that from the church in continuing to promote and teach what we started with our earlier um, articles about needing to go back to basics. So whether it's talk about the nature of God, uh, the nature of redemption uh, being uh, centered in the work of Christ and then his uh, our union with him and so forth. Uh, the the shift is happening because the Christians themselves are not applying the uh, biblical principles to themselves and to the church. And as a result, we're not making the impact that the early church had in changing Rome from a fully pagan nation or empire to a what a Christianized base didn't mean everyone was a Christian, but now that the the, the atmosphere was changed in a unique uh, kind of way. So just just so that you know, there there is some uh, another connecting uh, dots here to connect. But that, this one here by Edward Erler, the rise of ethical cannibalism. Um, he refers to the um, the uh, the what what has happened is that liberate the liberation movement I guess um, <clears throat> from his very beginning sought to free human beings from the restraints of nature and nature's God which is exactly what we've just been saying and what uh, Jones was saying in his article Marx of course wasn't the first but his simple account is the easiest to explain. We, uh, we create God to put moral restraints upon ourselves. Creating this non-human or divine source gives the restraints greater authority. But once we realize that God is only a myth or, uh, or creation, it loses its authoritative power as a tool of oppression for the ruling classes. Once the proletariat seizes power in the inevitable dialectic of history, God will be exposed as a fraud, foisted on the people, and can be dismissed. So a new secular morality will then be designed to support the party of the working class. Today's secular religion of the woke resembles the party, but it no longer has roots in the working class as it uh, did under uh, Marxist-Leninism. So the when it goes on to say, though, is the non-binary ideology was a result of feminism, though I do not very much doubt that it was its ever intent. In a non-binary world, men can have babies and in the universe of political correctness, the punishment for denying this form of irrationality is swift and severe. There's that shift that we were talking about. Just as teachers and professors who refuse to leave the world of reason and science, they have experienced the peculiar wrath from that the non-binary world can generate. But it is so irrational in its insistence that common sense be ignored. Uh, their wrath defies description. So here's where it gets into the part about uh, the cannibalization. Liberation theology indulged in the same conclusions as the Marxist Leninists. Once it realized that God is dead, then morality was humanized in the more radical visions of Nietzsche. Once God is dead, everything is permitted and nothing is forbidden. Homosexual uh, liberation denies the natural distinction between male and female is relevant for sexual congress. The gay rights movement denied nature and natural distinctions. Gays insisted that their lifestyle should be publicly accepted because gays lived and acted in a manner that demonstrated their belief that nature provided no standards for morality and their demand to be seen and accepted in public was essential to the affirmation of this belief. In fact, the demand was not that the gay lifestyle be accepted, but that it should be recognized as superior because it was liberated from the constraints that restrained the lifestyles of heterosexuals whose sexual freedoms was restrained because of their belief that nature imposed 
those limitations. Bisexual, polysexuals, and other kinds of sexual uh, were still well, uh, are still well sexual in the same sense. So here's where it changes. Transgenders are, have are much more serious commitment to the denial of nature, and therefore may made a greater claim to moral superiority. They resorted to technology, a much more radical and irreversible commitment to their attempts to extinguish nature altogether. Transgenderism seeks the ultimate victory of technology over nature, the goal of science at its very origins, the conquest of nature. You can ask uh, my friends, if I have any more left, uh, whether I predicted this transgender would out soon outrun gays in the new morality, a morality which judges uh, based on those uh, most committed to the denial of the relevance of nature and all standards of nature. And it says, and this is where cannibalism comes in the ethical sense. Isn't cannibalism a greater denial of human nature? Doesn't cannibalism, cannibalism outrank transgenderism in the new morality? Cannibalism is not just the technological transformation of nature. The limitations of transgenderism is the re reliance on technology. It allows transformed nature to survive. Cannibalism, in radical contrast, doesn't recognize human nature or nature in any form. It is the ultimate liberation. It is free from restraints because it doesn't recognize the nature or nature's God. So that's just a, a scary article to even think about, but that's the direction in which thinking is going in this not so much post-Christian age as anti-Christian age. Yeah, so, so the, 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 the great pagan in. Yeah, the, the, the list, after the Israel-Hamas article, the list just, I mean, it got dark really quick. We've got the Marxist origin of woke and polytheistic cannibals, essentially. <laughs> that's that's essentially where we're at. Um, you know, what's interesting here, I just want to add some context to this. I don't want people to dismiss this as sensational. And the article itself, if you read it, then you know it's not the rise of ethical cannibals. We know it's not. But I have a, I, I've actually covered this story a year ago. Um on a program that I was doing um, specifically over, I don't know if you remember last, I think it was last summer. Uh, so in 2022, there was a Netflix show about the life of Jeffrey Dahmer, right? And there was, before that, and so this just lets you know the coordination here. Before that came out and there were women on Twitter and on social media that were starting to, to, to say that they were attracted to uh, this portrayal of of uh, of Jeffrey, uh, you know, Dahmer and and, you know, they thought he was sexy and everything else. And it was like, wow, this is disgusting. I mean, this really is a new form of depravity. Well, I guess uh, a month or so before the Dahmer series came out and kind of briefly, you know, was this flash in the pan series on Netflix. The New York Times tweeted this was back on July 23rd of 2022 cannibalism has a time and a place. Some recent books, films, and sh shows suggest that that time is now. Can you stomach it? And and then, then when I was, so that's what kind of dawned on me, that this was, a, this was kind of a coordinated marketing campaign to get people to accept the idea of cannibalism. And as a matter of fact, in this article by Edward Erler, uh, he starts his piece by citing the Los Angeles Times, and the third paragraph has has published not one but two rave reviews of a movie celebrating cannibalism. So the media, just like with the transgender stuff, just like with the gay stuff, just like normalizing every form of depravity you can think of, the the media, which is controlled and uniform, okay, um, they are they're serving you know their masters to basically make the United States. Um, the most degenerate country on the face of the planet and, and to get the people to heartily approve all of the degeneracy. So anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. So that, these, you're right. We're not, there's no sensationalism in this. This is showing what the uh, culture is thinking and where it's going as it thinks that way. Well, Paul, we've come to the end of our top 10 articles uh, today being December 4th, tomorrow on the 5th. Now you'll receive the top 10 list all hyperlinked and ready to be clicked on for you to read and trust you will. And it's also that you feel free to forward the email with the list so others can also access them. And uh, hopefully it'll be helpful in your discussion 
your thinking and discussion with others in your circle of friends and uh, discussion groups. So um, trust that that will be helpful to you. And we're so glad that um, uh, the, um, you know, that things will continue to grow. You'll continue to grow and be challenged uh, as you read articles and you should discuss things in the Christian faith and that we will have, have a clearer way of being a witness in the world in which we live. And so until the next time, we pray the Lord's blessing on you.